Hello, I am Paul the Polymath, and welcome to the Polymathematics Institute, where we search for learning, growth, and mastery. Today, let's start with a question. Is it the responsibility of the individual to do the learning for society? Do we as individuals need to each be a master learner in order for society to grow at large? Just think on that for a second. What if a large enough portion of society is unwilling to learn? What if they are stuck? This seemed to be the case 80 years ago. Our society decided that uh, second generation after the slaves were freed, these people needed to be oppressed, segregated, treated as second-class citizens. A large enough portion of the society kept any progress from happening. We were unable to grow because a big enough portion of the population was unable to recognize the basic dignity and human rights of a certain portion of our population. There are still a lingering portion of our population unable to get past their personal bigotries in order to accept the rights of racial minorities. They are still stuck, generationally, stuck in a time where they are jaded and unable to grow. I have read that it is an inability to empathize with people outside of your perceived kin group that leads to these bigotries. Understanding cultures, subcultures, and people outside the norms of our society seems to be a difficult task for everyone. Is it really more difficult for some of us than others, or is it just that bigotry is easier? Do we need to feel allegiance to our identified group, even if that group outwardly displays willful ignorance and hate? Or is the answer simply dogmatic essentialism, our need to believe in outdated ideas? Let's move on to the problem at hand. Have you ever had a single learning experience, a dabble if you will, that actually transformed you? For me, one of these experiences was taking an anthropology course in college entitled Sex Roles in Cultural Perspective. A little background information might set the tone. I was a non-traditional student when I finally got to college. I went to serve my country in the Navy first. My worldviews at that point were a mixture of my own, my hometown, and the culture that I experienced while serving my country. Part fierce independent thinking, part still developing values, and part values instilled by a small rural town and the military. My first impression of the class was that it was going to be some sort of hippy-dippy discussion class with little expectation, and I was going to quietly and politely listen but not put forth my best effort. I just needed to get the credit, a check in the box. I showed up in the first class and my immediate noticing was that other than the professor, a white male in his late 40s or early 50s with a shiny bald head with the cesarean wreath of hair orbiting just above his ears and a thick gray mustache, that I was the only other male in the class. The professor was an anthropologist and he actually dressed the stereotype. He actually wore light tan khaki pants with a matching shirt adorned with extra pockets, a brown belt, leather loafers. He peered from behind wire-framed spectacles and spoke softly and unoffensively. As I had planned that first class, I sat and listened. I did not talk. I did not put up any emotional shields or push back. I just had an expectation that was all going to be a bunch of fluff, and I knew that I had other more pressing work to do. The professor handed out a syllabus with a list of books that we would be expected to purchase and read. 
He then showed a short documentary of his work. He was studying transsexual prostitutes in Oaxaca, Mexico. At this point, I became a little unnerved. I was actually uncomfortable, and yet none of my classmates even bristled. I had just left the military in the early 90s, and I did not have any life experiences to help me deal with this. For one thing, I don't talk about sex. There are many reasons for this, but these are beyond the scope of this podcast, so don't expect that type of content from me. But furthermore, I was uncomfortable with the topic because the concept of gender is flexible, was new to me, and I didn't have the tools to understand it. What I was experiencing is what we now know is called cognitive dissonance. I previously held a belief about binary gender norms, and I was being confronted with new information that challenged my extant framework for understanding. I had created binary classifications that were in alignment with social norms, but were not necessarily correct. Don't get me wrong, I had gone to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show with my friend Joe from the Navy. He was that guy that helps you to question your fears while incongruously holding up some of his own irrational fears. Joe helped me to understand that sexuality was a spectrum. Our discussions over the years helped me to overcome some of my misunderstandings and bigotries. If only he knew that impact that he was having, even then seeing that movie, was more of a fantastic and weird experience. It wasn't an examination of the history, the facts, or the way to understand gender issues. I was ignorant. The fact that I was the only cisgender heterosexual male student in the class also created a situation where I was forced to confront my beliefs. I kept quiet and I did not ask questions. I read, I listened. I did not challenge anybody but myself. I could clearly see that my bias that I was carrying was culturally based and no more valid than other social norms that I had cast off decades earlier. We collected a notebook of articles from anthropology journals that the professor would give us each week. We read three novels about gender and the struggles of non-binary peoples going back thousands of years to Samaria and Egypt. I learned about the two-spirit members of the Lakota, Cheyenne, and Crow I learned that gender and sex are different things, and I listened with an open mind to the stories of this tiny minority of peoples and their struggles with their existence. My classmates exposed my bigotries and held me accountable. I learned that asking questions about these issues is fine, but you need to ask honest questions, questions that when answered will help you to learn. I had to face my ignorance and accept that when new information became available, I needed to be considerate and grow. This took radical empathy. I assumed driven by my fierce independent thinking, it was not easy or immediate. To summarize what I learned, gender fluidity is not a debate. It is not a defect. It is a fact well studied and understood as part of the overall human experience. It has been with us for all of recorded history across all cultures throughout the world. I had not expected to have my opinions changed, but I was changed. At least I thought I was. The next thing I needed to learn was that intellectual understanding does not equate to an elimination of bigotry. It was also during this time that I witnessed something that bothered me and brought to reality the way that these people were treated and the fear and hate that their differences evoked in the population at large. 
At the time, I lived on a main thoroughfare near the university in the town I still live in. The street was a main crossroad and also the transition point between the main highway and the business district headed north. Every morning, a person that I now understand as a trans woman would walk along the sidewalk on that road headed north. Full sundress, like would have been popular in the 1950s. Red high heels, lipstick, hair done in curls with a sun hat carrying one of several purses and sporting a full Viking worthy beard. I loved to people watch and this person fascinated me. At the time, in this area of the United States, there was no language to discuss the finer details of this person's attire, like the term I later learned, passable. Well, one day she was walking along the sidewalk and I was sitting on the front porch and enjoying my morning coffee. Side note, because of my ignorance towards what this person wanted, I will use pronouns that match the expression of her gender from this point forward. Uh, anyways, a truckload of cowboys rolled up and threw bottles. One of them hitting her square in the shoulder, she shielded her face and eyes and looked away. They screamed at her, calling her pejoratives and threatening violence. Only when a car behind them unleashed a horn did they speed away. Well, she straightened up, just continued to walk as if nothing happened. I was upset mostly about the abuse three things happened over the next week as I reflected on this incident. First, I wondered why she would do this to herself. Why not just conform to the social norms of her surroundings? Upon reflection, I recognized that for me, conformity is super painful. The idea that your true self cannot exist without the permission of others, particularly the closed-minded bigoted masses, for me has added extra years to my appearance. Not being allowed to express yourself, your opinions, your worldview, speak with your own voice under threat of not being able to make a living or worse, was even at that time for me an extremely taxing proposition. How could I expect her or any human being to do that? Their vitriol and hatred had the opposite effect of what they wanted. She was going to defiantly be herself and to continue to do so even at a great expense to her personal safety. It also had solidified my opinion on this subject. Watching that act of hatred made her a sympathetic character and myself an ally against what I had seen. The second thing that I faced as this week went forward was thinking about how many more people like her lived out there. Not as brave, not as tough. And either cast to the fringes of society or forced to go through their entire lives pretending to be someone else and what other expressions of humanity were also being oppressed in a country that claims to be free. I had just left the Navy and I'd actually fought a war under the pretense that it was for freedom. Where was this supposed freedom? The third thing that I thought about was the idea of how this person made other people feel just by existing. She represented a space between binaries, a person that did not neatly fit within a classification I will admit, I never said hello. I was definitely uncomfortable with her difference from myself. I would later have similar initial reactions to trans people when I would counter them. I am ashamed that I had these reactions. I had to deal with my feelings. I needed to grow and change. That kind of change requires work. But because of my efforts to deal with this topic directly and holding myself up to the lens of self-reflection, 
I worked through my own change by learning how to be more empathetic, more compassionate, and less judgmental. In a sense, I was also caught in between two states of existence, the first more bigoted and the second more accepting. I still struggle with my own biases and work to root them out and surpass intellectual application, but instead make true and internal change. The work is never done. As modern learners, we need to recognize that this work takes lifetimes. And so an ending point for your grandparents was the starting point for your parents, and their apex of understanding should become the beginning of yours. Hopefully our grandchildren will have the advantage of successive generations of growth and understanding. However, right now I am concerned about whether or not that will be true. Will our grandchildren be able to grow up in a world with more understanding, less bigotry, and continue to grow? Is it possible for an individual to learn something that society cannot? Do the minority of bigots fueled by fear get to dominate the discussion around the existence of people that they simply don't understand? Do the extremists get to halt our growth? I don't know. I really don't know if we can know the answers to these questions. These questions are difficult. Even more difficult are the questions that peel back the layers to reveal the causes, not just the societal symptoms. Are we required to completely understand someone, to see them for who they are, and to give them grace and compassion that we would hope people would give to us? Is at least some bigotry rooted in performative hatred? Is some of that bigotry and hatred simply the bandwagon effect? Is the press culpable due to their lack of shaming the bigots? Shouldn't they be holding them accountable? Will society always be vulnerable to performative bigotry as an avoidance tactic? The replacement of beneficial policy by stirring hate and division? Histrionics. Histrionics in social media. Histrionics in rhetoric. Histrionic cruelty. We are so worried about putting on that act. The price for that attention seems to be social extortion. Perhaps the time has come for us to flip the social price gouging. Perhaps we should just be more accepting of the differences and celebrate them. Maybe then humans would be free to be humane. I'm a photographer and my favorite photography is candid, catching people as they actually are. When I have time again someday, I will return to street photography. Back when I shot film, I always carried my camera and shot thousands of rolls of film of the people that I would see. People that I knew, people that I didn't. This is the most difficult type of photography for one simple reason. When people see the lens, they immediately become conscious of how society might see them. For most people, they are already living a socially acceptable life. They aren't doing anything that would be considered odd or out of the norm. Their behaviors are typical. This everlasting thread of normality needs to be shot in black and white. Why? Because color betrays the liminal nature of human existence. Color evokes nostalgia and gives the photos an emotion beyond what was actually there. It is more than real. Black and white strips away the pretense and gives us the objective slice of that timeline. In a sense, black and white photography captures the transition. Black and white photography is the travel photography for time. 
and black and white photography is misnamed. It is actually mostly gray. The middle ground is where the detail and story and subject can be found. The blacks in a properly exposed printed photo are the background that anchors that story. The whites are the highlights containing no information. Just an ephemeral glint that draws your attention. In this way, the medium itself reflects our society. The majority of the interest, the story, the information, and subjects is found in the dynamic grays. The extremes occupy less than 10% of that value. Yet in our society, we are allowing them to dominate the frame. In another analogy of bigotry, crushing the blacks and overexposing the whites, it is worth considering that just like the photographer, society creates its composition. Society gets to choose the final print, and like Ansel Adams in the processing, strive for perfection. Keep reframing, spend the time in the lab examining the projection of our image through a loop looking for sharp focus. Maintain an even temperature and change the chemistry to keep it fresh, precision, and focus. Finally, I believe that those cowboys in that truck were all performing for each other's approval. I don't think that any individual in that truck would have acted in that way on their own. The histrionic feedback loop creates what I call competitive extremism. The idea is simple. It is just like the development of any sport. In order to stand out in a group, your performance of that group's values needs to become more and more extreme. Think about the development of freestyle skateboarding. From the invention of the skateboard proper in 1962, to the invention of the Ollie in 1978, we see a 16 year gap. And we go from that to Tony Hawk in just 10 years. Now those tricks were once considered extreme are now passe. Social performative behaviors also follow this model. Each person willing to become more and more bigoted, more and more terrible in order to earn social currency and to stand out in the group. Others with less social currency are willing to push the limits further and further. Perhaps our bigotry against gender non-binary is just the result of ignorance combined with human need to fit in. If you're in a hate group, the outcome seems logical. For these people, they lack the bravery that that trans woman had to stand up and be herself. They need peer approval in a social group that values hate. To the learner, self-reflection is our inoculation against competitive extremism. To any reasonable person willing to learn, it is not difficult to understand the difference between sex and gender. The difficulty is facing the lens. Are you willing to see who you really are and do the work to improve? <laughs>